So we're going to continue on this morning in our series that we've been in, in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm just letting y'all know, the Gospel of Mark is a challenging book. And so hopefully this morning, this sermon will challenge us all a little bit to maybe have different eyes to see the way God sees. That maybe we could borrow God's eyes and ears this morning and see and hear the way God does. I want to start with a quote by Gustavo Gutierrez. He says, I hope my life tries to give testimony to the message of the gospel. Above all, that God loves the world and loves those poorest within it. When I read the scriptures, and this is from my own reading and study, but I see an unmistakable message from the beginning to the end of the Bible. That God has a special love and his heart for the people who suffer the most. As I read both the Old and the New Testaments, I see countless examples of a preferential concern for the physical and spiritual welfare of the poor. The Catholic Church actually has a teaching on this, a doctrine that captures this. They call it the preferential option for the poor and suffering. And this teaching affirms that God loves everyone, but God's ear is uniquely attuned to hear the cries of the needy. And I think this is most clearly evident in the life of Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, we we see a theme all throughout the Gospel of Mark. We see consistently Jesus moves beyond the center where often the power and the privilege and the advantage and the comfort is. And he moves beyond the center out to the margins. Jesus crosses boundaries over and over and over again. I believe to show us God's heart for those who have been pushed out to the margins. To show us God's heart for the poor, for the outcasted, for the lonely, for the rejected. What Jesus does throughout the gospel, you could call, he kind of puts on a performance of the kingdom of God. So through Jesus' actions, the things he does, the things he says, he's putting on a show for us in some sense where he's showing us what God's heart really is all about. And so when we pay attention to what Jesus says and what he does, we get a picture of what the kingdom of God truly is about, what God's deepest desire is for humanity. His actions are in many ways symbolic, revealing something deep and profound about God. And from our text that we'll get into for this week, through Jesus' actions, we learn about God's special love for the poor and for the outcasted. So I want to dig into our story. So first, I want to recap where we've come from. The Gospel of Mark began with lots of conflict right off the bat. Jesus encountered evil spirits. Even in the synagogue, the place of worship, he faced intense opposition from the religious and political authorities. His own family ended up rejecting him early on. And eventually the authorities traveled from Jerusalem all the way up to Capernaum to check him out. And they decided that they wanted to put an end to Jesus' life. And they started to plot about how they might kill Jesus. Then right after that, we move into a long teaching section that we looked at last week with three different parables. And we talked specifically about the parable of the mustard seed. And so after all that conflict, we see Jesus, this rhythm where he was highly engaged, but he also had to withdraw. And so he pulls away from the conflict, goes down by the lake with his disciples, some followers, and he teaches them and tries to help them make sense of what is going on 
in the early days of their ministry with him. And we connected that to this individual Howard Thurman that I taught you about, that some of you may knew. He, was, he really served as like a spiritual mentor uh, for these activists in the freedom movement. And so often they needed to disengage and go sit under the teaching of these spiritual masters and teachers who could help them make sense of what was going on around them. And so uh, this is what Jesus would often do. And then after he told them the parable of the mustard seed, he said this to his disciples. Let us go over to the other side. Let us go to the other side. And this begins a new section in the Gospel of Mark that involves two major crossings over the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the sea. And these crossings are really important. In Mark, uh, what I've come to see is that the Sea of Galilee has become kind of a symbolic barrier between Jewish territory and Gentile territory. And so on these two major crossings, Jesus leaves this predominantly Jewish territory and he crosses over the Sea of Galilee to a predominantly Gentile territory. And it's really interesting, both times he makes that crossing, they encounter serious storms that almost take their life on the sea. And I think these storms are also pointing to something deep and symbolic that when we make those kinds of crossings and we are willing to cross those boundaries, that often it can be hard. It can be difficult. It's going to take a lot of courage, a lot of fortitude, a lot of grit in order to continue on in this ministry that Jesus is doing. So these divisions between the alienated Jewish and Gentile territories and people groups were very deep-seated. They were woven into the fabric of daily life and public policy, and bridging that gap was not going to be easy. And so those storms come, in many ways, opposition to this work of Jesus. As I think about the journey to the quote-unquote other side, it's often a very scary journey when we think about it. I've had the opportunity to travel to the other side Many times throughout my life, and often it's because people have taken me to the other side or I've chose myself that I want to push myself and get outside of what's comfortable to me and cross those boundaries. But the times I've been willing to cross boundaries and give up comfort and privilege and make sacrifices for others, it's usually been pretty scary at first. Me coming and working at this church a long time ago, in many ways, was going to the other side for me. I grew up on the opposite end of town, moving to this part of town, getting to know the people here. It was different for me, right? Because it's a different culture, a different way of being in this part of Lexington. But it was life-changing to me, but it was kind of scary at first. But I believe to follow Jesus, Jesus, we're going to have to go to the other side sometimes because that's where Jesus is going to lead us. It's a journey often to the unknown, a journey to what seems foreign to us, a journey what we could call even to the other side of humanity, a face of this world that we do not always see. So you may want to ask yourself, what would it look like for me to travel with Jesus to the other side? What boundaries do I need to be working to overcome? In these next few chapters, we read about Jesus taking many journeys to the other side, crossing boundaries and kind of these hierarchies that are set up in society. There are some people who are more important than others, and he crosses these over and over, these boundaries that are deeply woven into the fabric of our hearts and our society. And these, they needed these other side experiences, I think, to learn what the kingdom of God was all about. And so we're about to get into our text. Jesus and his disciples 
had crossed over to Gentile territory. And you may know the story of when Jesus heals this garrison demoniac, this guy that had these shackles on him. They couldn't keep him down. And then he ends up crossing back over the Sea of Galilee to the Jewish side. And in this story, we see Jesus breaking boundaries and tearing down these hierarchies that had separated people and really was hurting people in first century Palestine. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. So this is a really powerful story, and I'm excited to get into this. So when Jesus had again crossed over, there's the crossing, to the other side of the lake, A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I can touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, he, the disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering." While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, while this commotion and wailing, this child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to get her something to eat. This is a profound story to me. And Mark is so like, concise in what he says, and he leaves out a lot of details, but he gives a lot of detail in this story. And I just think some of the details are so important. And when Mark gives a lot of detail, with Mark being so uh, short on words at times, you need to pay attention to the details, because I believe Mark is doing this for a reason. And so I'm going to break some of this down for us. In the story, you may have noticed that the crowds are very prominent in this story. The crowds are mentioned four different times in these verses. Now keep in mind, I told you this a few weeks ago, the crowds really represented Mark this kind of teeming and just large mass of poor and suffering people that would follow Jesus around everywhere. And the crowds were all about what Jesus was offering, but they were also very fickle, and, and many times they were suffering immensely, and so they were coming to Jesus trying to find something to bring them hope in their lives. So once again, Jesus is out there with the crowds. 
He was not hiding out. He was with the crowds, with the people among the poor and suffering. When he was out by the lake, a man named Jairus approached him for some help. Now, Jairus was not part of the crowds. He was a man in that society who would have had very high status and honor. Honor was very important back then. We've talked about this many times. They lived in an honor-shame culture where everybody was always trying to figure out kind of where they stood with everybody and how they could ramp up their honor status among folks. Jairus was a man who had a lot of honor and status. He was the head of his house, and he was also the head of a social group at the synagogue. In the ancient Near East, everyone would understand these rules of honor and shame, and so Jairus was someone who would have been above many people in that society. He would have been shown respect because he was a man, because he likely had wealth, he had a family, he was a leader in the synagogue. So given his status, it makes a lot of sense that he just goes to Jesus face to face, boldly approaches him asking for what he wants. Because Jesus in his mind probably would have been seen, he's kind of my equal, right? And so he goes to Jesus, hey, my daughter's sick, I need your help. With confidence, you know, he's like, I can do this. So Jesus, then, um, so, while, so Jesus then left the crowd with Jairus because he heard that Jairus needed this help. And so he went with him and said, all right, let's go. And so they start to go to Jairus' house to visit his daughter. The crowds ended up following along with Jesus and Jairus and the disciples as they made their journey to his home. Now the crowd, it says, was pressing in on Jesus. So they were all surrounding them probably a chaotic situation. Jesus is probably getting bumped. People are up against his shoulders, you know. And and they were there like with all these people trying to get to Jairus' house. And as they walked around in all this commotion, Jesus stopped and he said, who touched me? Like who touched my clothes? And now Jesus was looking around trying to figure out who touched him. Then the disciples, they were confused because it says in the text that they're saying like, Jesus, there's people everywhere. And like, Likely, he's getting touched by lots of folks at that point. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, someone, everybody's touching you right now. What are you talking about, Jesus? But Jesus continued to look around for a particular person who had touched him. And I wonder, as I read this, perhaps the disciples saw this just crowd of suffering people, but Jesus didn't see just a crowd of people. He was able to put a face on that suffering and poverty that was around him. He cared about the actual people there. And he was looking for a particular person. It wasn't just a crowd to him. Turns out the person who touched him was a woman who did something that, that from my perspective, as I've studied this, is very out of line what she did in that culture. Like I said, there were clear distinctions between folks. Some people had status and honor and importance, and others didn't. And this woman who touched Jesus would have been really at the bottom of the pack. Everyone in society would have been above her. If Jairus was a respected man of high status, we can imagine that she probably was a despised woman of very low status. Jairus in this story is given a name. She is not given a name. Jairus approached Jesus confidently, face to face, and she snuck up behind Jesus, likely feeling lots of shame and embarrassment. Mark doesn't tell us her name, but Mark actually tells us a lot about this woman. And what he does tell us is so heartbreaking. Here's what we know. She had a flow of blood that had lasted for 12 years. 
Jewish purity laws said that women had to quarantine while menstruating because they were considered to be unclean. This would have been very isolating. She had been suffering likely from vaginal bleeding for 12 long years, meaning she had to stay away from other people. Imagine the isolation she must have felt. She had also suffered under the care of many doctors, it says. So she had seen many, many doctors, and she still had the same issues. It says that she had spent all her money on her health care. And so she had seen all these doctors, and all her money was gone. <laughs> I don't need to do that. Um, see, this is when you preach, you got to use your hands, you know, but i got to be careful not to knock this thing down. <laughs> But she had spent all her money on all these doctors that she had been seeing. And what it also says is that her condition did not improve, but only worsened. I was talking to Rachel about this this week, and she pointed out that this is actually the story of people even today, right? That how many folks are suffering with illness and sickness. They go see many, many doctors, can't get the help they need or the time and, and, and focus they need from their health care providers. And then all their money ends up going away and they're only in a worse spot after it's all done. This was a common problem during their time. People spent a lot of money on health care that wasn't very effective, which left people poor and still sick. The doctors took all her money, and it didn't, she didn't get better. And as we'll see, Jesus, I love this, he cures her without charge. This woman, as Ched Myers has said, was doubly poor and doubly outcast. She was already struggling, but then she lost all her money, and then she was struggling even more and suffering even more. And when, Jesus, when she approached Jesus and she touched Jesus, she violated all the social codes. A woman cannot approach a man like that and definitely cannot touch a holy man, a religious teacher like Jesus, while being unclean. So instead of shaming her or calling her out, Jesus listened to her. She fell at his feet trembling in fear, and it says she told Jesus, the whole truth. Think about the courage of this woman. She violated all the social norms and laws, touching Jesus, talking to Jesus, and asking for his help. She wanted healing, and she wanted to be well. And Jesus said to her, he said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So she, at first, was an outcast, poor, suffering and alone, yet Jesus healed her. And I love that Jesus called her his daughter. Mark is showing us a transformation in her life. Someone who was outside of the fold has been invited into Jesus' family. And not only did he heal her, but he restored her to peace and to social wholeness. She didn't have to quarantine anymore. She no longer had to be outcasted. So while speaking to her, some people from Jairus' house showed up. Now don't forget, Jairus has been there the whole time, probably waiting Maybe perhaps impatiently for Jesus to move on with it and get to his house because his daughter was not well. And he was likely, I'm sure, very anxious and afraid for his daughter's health. And so he was probably waiting for Jesus to get back on track. But I think it's pretty profound in this story that Jesus made Jer Jairus wait while he showed some love and healing to this poor woman. Jairus' people showed up with bad news. Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? So while Jairus waited for Jesus to deal with this poor woman, his daughter died. Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Perhaps he was telling Jairus, hey Jairus, take the advice example of this poor outcasted woman. She had faith. Come on Jairus, 
Get it together. See what's happening here. So he went back to Jairus' house. He kicked everybody out. And then he healed the young girl. And she came back to life. And she started walking around. And he offered her some food. Mark tells us an interesting fact about her. Uh, She was 12 years old. Mark, who doesn't often give lots of detail, adds this in. The number 12, I believe in this story, and many people have pointed out, perhaps links this bleeding woman who bled for 12 years with this young girl who was 12 years old. This woman bled for 12 years, and this girl was 12 years old. In a great work of literature like the Gospel of Mark, I think the details matter. Over those previous 12 years in that world, this girl lived 12 years of probably a very fairly comfortable life, a privileged life with this synagogue leader in this community, yet was on the verge of death. But this poor outcast woman had endured 12 years of suffering under this oppressive purity system and these swindling doctors. And I love what Ched Myers says, and I think it's very interesting. He says, the object lesson can only be that if Judaism wishes to be saved and lived, it must embrace the faith of the kingdom. A new social order with equal status for all. This alone can liberate the lowly outcast and snatch the noble from death. I want you all to think about how outlandish this story is. Jesus prioritizes the healing of a poor, nameless, outcast woman. He took the time necessary to restore her, which meant the privileged family of Jairus had to wait. This is certainly, I think, connected to Jesus' teaching that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I believe this is an example of what I'm talking about, God's preferential option for the poor and suffering. And one thing to point out here is that Jairus' daughter still received healing. She wasn't left out. In God's kingdom, there is enough to go around for all of us. We live in our society right now, and a lot of people want to tell us this myth of scarcity to say that there's not enough to go around for everybody, and if this person gets some kind of help or advantage, then that means you're going to suffer. And this is a tool used to scare us so that we hold tightly to our stuff and we don't want to share, we don't want to give anything up because we think that there's not enough for everybody. In God's kingdom, there is enough for everyone. Just because Jesus prioritizes those on the margins does not mean he lacks love for everyone else. I'll remind you of the story of the lost sheep where Jesus leaves the 99 to go out and save the lost sheep. doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love the 99 sheep that are left back. It just means this one sheep needed some love, some extra attention, some extra care. And Jesus' heart, the shepherd, is attuned to hear the cry of those who need God's love and help. I'll remind you of, I've said, shared this a few years ago, but there was this uh, group led by Bishop uh, Reverend William Barber called the Poor People's Campaign, and, and he said this, and I love the campaign. One of their slogans was, when we lift from the bottom, everybody rises. And I love this idea that when we, like Jesus, prioritize those in the margins, we place those at the center of our life and of our ministries, then I believe all of us rise. All of us are experiencing the healing and goodness of God. And we're all invited to join Jesus in this work that he initiated um, to really reach out and to go out to the margins with Jesus and bring those who have been pushed aside and place them at the center of what we are about at Embrace. One of our values is that we keep Jesus at the center. And if we're going to keep Jesus at the center, then we've got to bring all Jesus' friends to the center as well. 
Because when, you know, you see when Jesus throws a party or anything, you see who he invites, right? Jesus is always going out to find those who have been rejected and pushed aside and say, you all matter and you all need to be at the center of what we are about. And I think this story portrays that in such a profound and powerful way. I have a few reflection questions that I just want to share with you all, and you may want to snap a photo of it or write them down, or you can go online and find them later. But, but these questions can help you maybe enter into the story. The first is, where does this woman's story become your story? Have you ever had moments in your life when you've been the bleeding one, the broken one, the excluded, the invisible, or the marginalized? When you felt like you don't belong? I love this woman's determination for healing and freedom. She was willing to go and tell the whole truth and speak what she needed to say and seek out what she needed from Jesus. Her determination for healing and freedom, I think, can inspire those of us who are desperately needing to be set free. And then this third question, is on, I'm just going to be honest, is one I'm still wrestling with and struggling through right now. Can you accept Jesus as healer, both of personal and societal disease. In my own life, just the personal healing, there's things I've been praying for, for myself and for others, and I'm not getting the answers that I'm praying for, you know, and I know that many of you all are probably in similar situations. I know the healing stories can be hard for people who have lived with lifelong things that they're just dealing with, and, and, and so a lot of this is stuff that I'm even right now in this moment in my journey wrestling with and wondering what these healing stories can say to us in these moments. But I'm trying to lean into the discomfort and still lean into this idea of Jesus as healer and what that can mean for myself and for those people that I love and continue to pray for. And then the second set of questions I want to ask is about us to consider who is this hemorrhaging or bleeding woman in our world today? Who are those who are bleeding out today and need the love of Jesus? How can we be the healing presence of Jesus here on earth? How might you be in solidarity with the marginalized in ways that honor and respect them? How might you step aside, as perhaps Jairus did, to allow the rightful claims of the poor to be realized? What social taboos will you have to violate, as did the courageous woman and Jesus, in order to be in solidarity with those on the margins? These are questions you can't figure out right now. Uh, These are things we're going to have to sit with and wrestle with Um, really over the course of the rest of our lives. But hopefully these kinds of questions can come up for us as we continue to move throughout our year. And and hopefully the story can be a challenge and an inspiration to us as we seek to follow the example of Christ um, as he leads us to cross those boundaries and go to the other side um, in our day-to-day lives in which we're living. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.